Welcome to the AM Global Podcast Series addressing business concerns we face today. In this three part podcast series, we'll discuss the dramatic rise in the use of telehealth during the coronavirus pandemic. We'll touch on how organizations are dealing with strategic operations of telehealth, the legal, regulatory, and compliance risks needing to be addressed, as well as the future of medicine, with virtual health now viewed as a viable and prominent feature of care delivery. Welcome back to the second installment of our three-part podcast series focused on telehealth. I'm Peter Ivanowitz. I co-lead the healthcare industry group at Alvarez and Marcel. In this podcast series, we've been talking to some industry experts about the history of telehealth or virtual health and the recent upswing in usage in light of the COVID-19 pandemic. In our first episode, we discussed how physicians, hospitals, and healthcare systems were using telehealth prior to the COVID-19 pandemic. In this episode, we'll discuss the legal and regulatory issues that providers should be aware of as they build and operate their virtual health programs. I'm joined today by three very knowledgeable legal and compliance panelists. Colleen Curran, a managing director in our healthcare industry group's regulatory and compliance services practice. Mary Findlay, a senior director in our regulatory and compliance services practice. And Allison Fetke, who is counsel at the law firm of Ropes and Gray and a member of their healthcare practice. Allison, Mary, and Colleen, thank you all for being with us today. The COVID-19 pandemic has brought telehealth to the forefront as a means to expand access to healthcare services when patients cannot visit their physician offices, as well as to ensure continuity of care and reduce the risk of COVID-19 transmission to others. The federal government responded pretty quickly by relaxing a number of regulatory restrictions on telehealth, as well as expanding benefits available to beneficiaries for telehealth services during the public health emergency. I want to turn first to Colleen Curran. Colleen, the federal government acted pretty quickly in this space. Can you briefly tell us what the actions were that the federal government took by way of waivers or policy changes that enabled quicker access to and payment for telehealth services? Yes, hi, Peter. Thank you. Certainly, I think from a, from a federal payer or Medicare perspective, there were really three key areas of waivers that, that came into play that were important to be able to easily respond or allow people to easily respond and utilize telehealth services. The first one was on the type of provider. CMS immediately issued a waiver that expanded the type of providers that were eligible to bill for Medicare telehealth professional services. So this actual waiver requirement that came into play allowed increased or enhanced the number of individuals that could actually bill for their services to all of those that are eligible to bill for Medicare for their professional services. So no longer was there any restrictions on the type of providers that could provide services. So what this did is it enhanced the individuals or allowed individuals like physical therapists, occupational therapists, speech and language pathologists, and others to actually receive payment for Medicare telehealth services. I think the second area of focus was on the geographic and site location restrictions. So CMS issued waivers that provided payment for 
office, hospital, and other visits furnished via telehealth across the country and including in a patient's place of residence. So what that did, prior to the waiver, Medicare covered telehealth only for a limited range of services provided to individuals located in rural areas, and then only when those individuals were present at certain types of healthcare facilities, such as a hospital or a doctor's office or a skilled nursing facility. So this actually relaxed that requirement and allowed it to occur in various different locations and settings. And they also allowed for providers to be able to provide services when they were at home. So they looked at both sides of that equation. And then I think that the final big waiver that, that's important to talk about is that CMS also covered health services that the professional provides to new patients and not just established patients for telehealth services. So prior to this, care would pay for telehealth services only when provided by a healthcare professional who had an existing relationship with the patient. So this expanded that particular aspect as well. Allison, I know there are a number of changes made with respect to HIPAA enforcement and licensing enforcement. Can you briefly tell us what those were? Sure, absolutely. Thanks, Peter. So first, starting with HIPAA, um, which is enforced by the Office of Civil Rights in HHS. So I think initially OCR was a bit reluctant um, to issue this enforcement discretion, but it did so early on in the pandemic in March, and it announced in March that it would exercise enforcement discretion for healthcare providers, and that's important, it's providers only, for breaches of its privacy, security, and breach notification rules under HIPAA for use of telehealth services. So this immediately provided a lot of flexibility for healthcare providers to use telehealth services without the capital investment that would be required to put in place HIPAA secure telehealth applications or technologies. And I think we're going to talk a little bit more about HIPAA uh, later on. So I'll also cover activities taken by the state. So Many states, I think all 50, in fact, have issued waivers or exceptions to their healthcare provider licensing requirements. And this has allowed healthcare providers to provide telehealth services across state lines, which historically has not been permitted. It generally required, states required that a healthcare provider providing telehealth services to their citizens to be licensed in that state. So all 50 states have issued some type of easement on licensing restrictions. It varies from reciprocity for certain states, complete waivers, also exceptions, extensions, and allowing retired providers in some cases to have their license reissued. It's interesting, a couple of states in particular even noted telehealth specifically in their state proclamations on these license restrictions, including, importantly, California, Missouri, and New Jersey. Mary, one of the major barriers towards telehealth growth uh, has been the Medicare program's pretty significant restrictions on reimbursement for virtual health or telehealth visits. They relaxed some of those and changed it. Tell our audience a little bit about some of the changes that Medicare made to its reimbursement policy for telehealth. Sure, Peter. First, I want to just note that, you know, with all these relaxation and and expansion of the ability to provide telehealth, CMS really expanded the types of telehealth services that can be provided during the COVID-19 pandemic. 
Medicare beneficiaries can receive telehealth services that include their evaluation and management visits. These are just your common office visits, mental health counseling, and preventive health screenings. From a reimbursement standpoint, Medicare considers these visits the same as in-person visits, and they are paid at the same rate as regular in-person visits. So that was very significant. Additionally, for the duration of the public health emergency, Medicare will, will make payment for professional services furnished to beneficiaries in all areas of the country and all, all settings, which was much more limited before this. One thing I'd like to note is that commercial payers are not providing parity in all cases for payments for in-person versus telehealth services. So that's definitely something to keep in mind. With respect to coinsurance and deductibles, Medicare would generally apply this to these services, but the HHS Office of Inspector General is providing flexibility now for healthcare providers to reduce or waive cost sharing for telehealth visits paid by federal healthcare programs. A final note I'd like to make around the reimbursement, there's some initiatives especially state initiatives, and one in particular I'll note is in Massachusetts, and this was approved by their Senate in June this summer of 2020, they would require health insurers to reimburse telehealth at the same rate as in-person services post the COVID-19 pandemic. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens from a reimbursement standpoint after the public health emergency is over. Mary, I think that waiver of co-insurance and co-payment by Medicare is pretty significant because one of the barriers to a telehealth service might be a beneficiary might be reluctant to, if they haven't done a telehealth service, that they get charged at the end of it. So I think that was a pretty significant change or at least re relaxation uh, by Medicare and the OIG in order to test a service like this. Sure is. Allison, I want to talk, uh, we'll get back to uh, uh, privacy and security. Uh, you're one of our great HIPAA experts, and we love conferring with you on a number of projects on this. But just because the care is going on over a phone or a computer or some sort of app on your smartphone, that doesn't mean there shouldn't be an expectation of privacy or confidentiality. So even with this, the relaxation or on enforcement that the OCR is taking, what should healthcare providers be doing and keeping in mind with respect to the HIPAA requirements on privacy and security of protected health information when doing these telehealth visits? It's a great question, Peter. You know, certainly this is an opportunity during this period of enforcement discretion and exploration, increased use of these telehealth services for providers to maybe try more telehealth. But of course, it's very important to keep in mind, you know, the basic protections on patient privacy. So as I mentioned earlier, OCR has announced this enforcement discretion during the period of the pandemic. It applies, as I mentioned, to healthcare providers, but not, for example, to plans or business associates, so something to keep in mind. But for providers providing telehealth services, if they are provided in good faith, and that's important, there is enforcement discretion for them to use non-public facing audio or video communication products. And uh, to your question, Peter, Actually, OCR does provide some guidance on what types of applications may be more appropriate than others. So they note them specifically, including some popular um, products that we've become very familiar with, such as FaceTime, 
Facebook Messenger and Zoom OCR notes that these may be, you know, more appropriate and more protected because they tend to have end-to-end encryption for the two participants using the application. OCR specifically also notes a couple applications that should not be used because they are not secure and they are public-facing, including the very popular TikTok, Facebook Live, and any public chat rooms. So, something for providers to keep in mind as they explore different venues for their telehealth services. Also, it's important to note that this enforcement discretion applies to all services provided by the healthcare provider. It doesn't necessarily have to be related to COVID-19. So I think that's important. That would be a, you know, a difficult restriction, I think, for many providers. In terms of execution on the provider side, a couple things to keep in mind. So Certainly, when a healthcare provider is providing telehealth services, it should be in a private location to the extent possible. So, you know, in a private office, in a private home, avoid public settings, use lowered voices, don't use speakerphones. You know, these are pretty common sense things to think about, but should certainly be employed with the use of these services. And another thing providers should definitely keep in mind and institute as part of their protocols for telehealth services is when they are starting a telehealth counseling relationship with a patient, you know, they should talk with them about the fact that this is telehealth and that these applications may not have been totally tested and just make sure that the patient is comfortable with the use of the technology and understands what's happening in terms of the telehealth visit. And lastly, providers can consider potentially expanding or using a specific consent to telehealth, considering what type of telehealth mechanism they're using. And that may be something they want to explore with patients to inform them in writing of this expanded telehealth and potential risks associated with privacy and security with telehealth visits. Thanks, Allison. Colleen, a lot of these changes that enable telehealth payment were made by way of exception or waiver. How long is that going to continue? Uh, Peter, so that the federal waivers that came in are actually set to continue to the end of the public health emergency, which is actually set to expire in just a couple days, July 25th. But we really anticipate, and it's been it's been talked about by HHS and CMS as well, that they'll be extending this for an additional 90 days. So that, that particular expiration is coming up, but we, we feel like it's gonna be moving into the October timeframe. The other thing too that's important are that there are state actions that are gonna vary in terms of the duration. So you really need to carefully look at any type of waiver that you're using from a state law perspective to make sure you understand when their waivers are going to actually expire. I think another important piece on this is that OCR's enforcement discretion that Allison talked about on the HIPAA side, again, it's similarly, you know, will terminate at the end of the public health emergency. So we anticipate, again, expansion of that into October. And then, you know, it's important to, to note that The federal government, CMS in particular, is currently reviewing the waivers and flexibilities that were created in response to this public health emergency and actually engaging with stakeholders to see about the suitability for these particular waivers post the public health emergency. So we may see more of this coming into light, especially in the telehealth area 
and we know that the federal government is taking an active look at that right now. We anticipate that there's going to be more to come on this, but for now, we're going with a public health emergency is when it's going to end, but hopefully, given this crisis, we'll actually be able to take some positive things from that in terms of the telehealth world and the accessibility of this for other individuals to seek care, bringing it into the future. So they are looking at that currently. And speaking of the future, our next episode and our final episode of our podcast, we're going to talk about the future of telehealth and what we've learned during what we might call this experimentation and expansion phase. With that in mind, I'd like to end here with some thoughts and observations from the three of you on, you know, not only now during this waiver and experimentation uh, phase, uh, what should providers be thinking about from a compliance perspective in maintaining and operating their telehealth programs? I'm going to start here with Mary. Sure, Peter. You know, this expansion of telehealth has certainly created new risk from a compliance perspective. Cyber risk, privacy risk, and coding and billing risk are just several. And really, these new risks should be factored into the organization's compliance risk assessment process. That will help them determine what additional measures need to be put in place to make sure they're mitigating the risk. Some of these activities might include implementing new policies and procedures, delivering additional education, which is going to, you know, has probably been very important for organizations. And always important is conducting your own monitoring and auditing activities. This is going to be scrutinized. The OIG has added telehealth to its annual work plan, and so these activities will be scrutinized, and so that's important to keep that in mind. Another thing to consider is just from a quality of care standpoint, the fact that these services are being performed virtually probably makes monitoring the quality of care almost more important than if the services were being performed in person. Allison, some final thoughts from you on what providers should be doing now and also thinking about into the future as they continue and expand their virtual health presence even after the pandemic. Sure, Peter. I think where service expansion lies, enforcement sometimes follows. And so keeping that in mind, in particular given telehealth and the specific risks associated with that related to potential fraudulent billing, given the nature of the service. I would encourage providers to really think about how they are documenting, and as Mary noted, how they are updating their procedures related to the provision of telehealth, from the actual service delivery to the billing, and then, of course, their quality controls. So making sure that the documentation practices are updated in time, as I mentioned, you know, potentially maybe updating either patient consents or informed consents for patients for the services and being vigilant with respect to these new services as they expand. So like many of the expansions that have happened under the COVID pandemic at the federal level, including some of the grant programs, we certainly expect there to be some activity on the back end of this, you know, through enforcement. So everyone should be thinking about that as they move forward. What great observations, uh, both on current practice and into the future. I want to thank again our panelists, Colleen Curran, Mary Finley, and Allison Fetke. Join us for our part three of this podcast series on telehealth, when we're going to talk about where virtual health goes from here. I'll be joined again by Dr. David Shulkin, the former Secretary of the United States Department of Veterans Affairs, Dr. Lewis Levy, the Chief Medical Officer of Teladoc, global leader in virtual health. 
and Karen Davis, Managing Director in our Healthcare Industry Group. For more of our insights around virtual healthcare, including the results of a recent survey on telehealth that we did with hospitals and physicians, please visit our website, www.alvarezandmarcel.com. I'm Peter Ivanowitz, and thank you again for listening to our program today on compliance and regulatory considerations in telehealth.